Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is called The Immutable Shema. The Shema has been the core creed of Judaism from the time of Moses to today. It stands as an immovable witness to God's identity as well as our proper relation to Him. Even though Jesus confessed the Shema, most Christians today aren't familiar with it. This is because after the New Testament age, under the influence of Greek philosophy, Christian thinking metastasized into Trinitarian dogma, scorning its native Hebrew context in the process. Eventually, Yahweh became Lord, and one became three in one, and the church became estranged from the Bible's legacy of Unitarianism. This led to persecuting Jews and Christian monotheists. Listen into this message about the Shema to find out how to stay true to the Bible's teaching about God's identity. I'm calling this the immutable Shema. And immutable means cannot be changed, and Shema is a Hebrew word that means listen up or hear. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read these words that are really the core of Judaism, whether we talk about ancient Judaism or modern Judaism. It's the creed of Christ, and it's a truth worth dying for as well as a truth worth living for. Is that set the stage enough? Are you excited? It's a simple statement, but it's extremely profound, and it really reaches to the depth of what it means to call God Father and to recognize Him as the true God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now the word hear, here, is the word Shema, and it's the word that means listen up or hear. And Moses is instructing the Israelites, they have been in the wilderness journey for 40 years. This is the last month they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses has one last chance with this people group to convince them to obey God before they go into the land. And so he's, he's getting them ready. He's preparing a generation, mostly young people. There would be a, a couple of older folks around like Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, but mostly younger folks who had grown up in the wilderness. And he's told them what God has done in the past, and now in chapter 6, he says, Listen up, Israel. Hear, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the word, the Lord there, is God's proper name, Yahweh. And Christian Bibles put the word Lord there so that Jewish people won't be offended. But that never really made sense to me because Jewish people aren't reading Christian Bibles. They're reading Jewish Bibles. So... <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say Yahweh, and, and, if it, and it's not my intention to offend you, but it's what it says. And so this is the statement from Hebrew, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 in Hebrew, and it says, Shema Yisrael, I'll put the transliteration underneath it, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. So that's what it says in Hebrew. In English, we translate it, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, then the, there's no word for is here. It's just skipped over. You're supposed to understand to put that in. So it really says, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. 
or we translate Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. It's a very simple statement. It's 11 words in English and in your translation when it has the Lord and everything else there. And in Hebrew, it's only six words. Shema Yisrael, listen up Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. And so this is the core belief of God's people. Four short words, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Those four short little Hebrew words sum up the faith of Israel for so many centuries. And you notice that on the slide here, I have two of these Hebrew letters larger. You see that third letter from the right Hebrew you read from right to left, right? So the, the first sound is a sh, and then an m, and then an ah sound, right? So the ah there is an ayin, that's bigger. And then at the very end, the, uh, the D there, the Dalit, is also bigger, right? And this is just how they like to write it, how the, the Hebrew-speaking people uh, like to write it, how the scribes like to write it. So they write that one letter A big and that one letter D big, and it spells out for them the word aid, which means, uh, well, let me read what, what I have here. As written in a Torah scroll, the letters Ayin and Dalit of the first verse are enlarged, encoded to spell out the Hebrew word aid or witness. When we say the Shema, we are testifying to the oneness of God. In other words, the Shema is a witness against anyone who may change this simple core truth that God is one. So they like to, to make those two letters bigger to remind themselves, don't change this. This is important. This is a witness against you or it's a witness for you, depending on if you are upholding it or not. And so then we get to the next verse. Uh, let's start again at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So the Shema itself runs to verse 9. But this is the first statement, right? Is that God is one, that Yahweh is our God and God is one. And then the second one is to love Him. And this is just a, a couple of things I want to point out before I look at how this idea develops historically and influences people's actions, how it really changes a lot of things for people. So the first thing to notice is that it says Yahweh. Now, in our world today, we know of very few other gods. However, there are other gods alive today. Like Vishnu, for example, is a god that people worship. All right? I don't honestly believe there is a that Vishnu is actually a living god, but there are living people who worship Vishnu and Krishna and Brahma, and you have Allah, and there's a big debate, is Allah the same as Yahweh, or is he not the same as Yahweh, right? Well, in ancient times, it was even more so. In ancient times, when this, when this is written, when Moses declares this to his people, there is a whole host of gods in Egypt from which they had just come out, right? In Egypt, they have the sky god, and they have the river god, and they have um, the frog god named Hecht, you know, and Yahweh had just decimated all these Egyptian gods. He had just ridiculed them all. He killed the, he killed the sun god for three days. For th three days, Ra did not get in his chariot and pull the sun across the sky. What is that? That's Yahweh saying, I am more powerful than your gods. I am the true God, right? And Pharaoh had asked Moses, right, who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? And so we get the ten plagues. That's who Yahweh is. And so they had come out of this, this context of all these gods. You had Nut and Apis and Hathor and Hect and Ra, right? All these Egyptian gods. 
And they're going into a land that worships all these other gods. They worship Baal and Asherah and Chemosh. And the Babylonians worship Marduk. Right? Later on, they encounter the Greeks who are worshiping Zeus and Apollo and all these other gods. Right? The world's full of gods in their time. And so this says, listen up, Israel. Yahweh is our God. Right? So the, these nations, they worship these other gods. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. So that's the context of this statement. And then the next thing I wanted to point out in, in verse 5 there is that the, the love command. For us, we have to have a little cultural sensitivity here because in our culture, this makes no sense at all. There's no such thing as a love command in our culture. Our culture believes that love is based on choice. In fact, we don't even believe that, really. We don't. Because we believe in this expression, falling in love. <laughs> right? People, the way they talk about love is like, it's just something that, whoa, just it comes in and it smacks you across the face. You're like, I'm in love. And I can't control it. And I have to be true to myself. And I have to act upon it over against whatever anybody else says. Right? So that's how our culture thinks about love. Well, the, the Hebrew culture is different. It's different. Here, they believe love is a choice. And love is not simply an emotion. It's a little bit more than that from a Hebrew mindset, right? Because look what he says here. Heart is one of these, but it's not all of them. In verse 5 there, look in your Bible. It says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. Yeah, that's there, right? But then also all your soul and all your strength, all your might, right? So you have this whole comprehensive statement that Moses is giving the people that they should love God. And so what is love here? It can't, it can't be exactly the same thing as what our culture thinks love is, right? Because you can't have one person command another person to feel intense, passionate, romantic feelings. That, that, that doesn't work, right? In fact, if you, if you do command somebody else to love you like that, it will probably guarantee they won't love you like that, right? Love me! I tell you, love me! It, does, it doesn't work like that, right? So... What is this? This is a command about behavior. This is about behavior. I think in English we might say, show love. Right? You might not even like this person, but you can still show them love. You can still express love. You know, Mark might have done something to me that, that hurt my feelings, but I can still express love towards him, even, even if I'm, I'm feeling hurt, right? And he could do the same for me. And so... Think of it more like that. He, what, what, what God is asking of his people is to recognize that Yahweh is the only God, or he's speaking through Moses here, and that you're supposed to express love to him. Now, what does expressing love to God look like? It looks like obedience. All throughout Deuteronomy, all throughout even, um, you see this in 1 John very strongly as well, that love and obedience are all wrapped up together. You can't really separate the two because God is not your pal. He's not your lover. He's not a romance. He's your God. To love my, my children is not for me to obey my children, right? But to love my God is for me to obey him because he's God, right? It's, a, it's the nature of that relationship that true love in that case means obedience. It means recognizing that he actually is God. And if he's God, look, we should obey him. It just makes sense if he's the creator and the almighty. And so this, 
This has a long history. These, these words here in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, a long history throughout time. And there was a rabbi about a century after the time of Christ named Akiva, Rabbi Akiva. And there had, the Romans had conquered Jerusalem a second time. And by conquer, I mean there was a nasty war and they, and they won the war and killed a lot of people. And the Romans had outlawed teaching the law of Moses, teaching the Bible to people. And so Akiva, being a rabbi, said, well, I'm going to still teach it anyhow. And come what may, I'm willing to take the consequence, the, the risk here. And so he traveled from village to village throughout the land of Israel, right, in the second century, teaching the Torah, teaching the, the ways of God to his people. And in the course of teaching that, he was teaching the Shema. He was teaching these very truths that we're reading today, thousands of years later, right? And eventually the Romans caught up with him, and they captured Rabbi Akiva, and they subjected him to torture. And they were torturing him, and it was a really nasty torture. They used an iron comb, and they were flaying his skin. I mean, it's just horrible torture, really trying to break the man. And at one point during this nasty ordeal, and he, you know, he knows he's going to die. Because this, this is what happens in Roman torture. You die. It's not like they let you go and be like, all right, have a nice day. No, you're, you're on your way to death. And while he's being tortured, he starts muttering to himself, and, and he chuckles. And the commander, the Roman commander, a man named uh, Turnus Rufus, says to him, are you a sorcerer? Have you no feeling of pain? You know, what's, what's wrong with you, Akiva? And Akiva replies, I am no sorcerer, but I rejoice at the opportunity now given me to love God with all my life, seeing that I have hitherto been able to love him only with all my means and with all my might. And with the word one, he expired. Akiva, had he's a rabbi. He'd puzzled long and hard over these words. To love God with all your heart, to love him with all your soul, to love him with all your might. And he felt that he had done the first and the third. He couldn't figure out a way. How do I love God with all my soul? With all, in Hebrew, soul is like the word for breath. It's the word for life, right? The, the living, animating component of the human condition. So he's like, how do I love God with my last breath? Today. Today, these Romans have given me that chance to do what I could never figure out how to do in my normal life. Now I can love God with my last soul, my last breath, my last bit of life. And so he starts saying these words, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, over and over and over again until he dies. And he dies on the word Echad, which is the word one. So here is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. On one, he kind of draws that out and he dies. It's a heroic story. And he set a precedent for dying, especially in persecution. So from the persecutions of the Romans in which Akiva died to the forced conversions of the Spanish Inquisition and the tortures that followed that, the burnings at the stake, to the murmur of Jewish voices in the Nazi gas chambers, to the victims of Hamas today, the people repeats the words of the Shema as they're dying. That's what they do. Whether we like that or not, that's what they do. That's a legacy, isn't it? It's quite a legacy to have. I've got a quote here from Isaac Leib Peretz. He says, The Hebrew language is the only glue which holds together our scattered bones. 
It also holds together the rings in the chain of time. It binds us to those who built the pyramids, to those who shed their blood on the ramparts of Jerusalem, and to those who at the burning stakes cried, Shema Yisrael. I mean, that's really twisted. I, mean, every, I don't know if you ever studied the Inquisition and the uh, burning at the stake in the Middle Ages. I mean, it's just nasty. I mean, here you have these uh, Christians who decide they want to forcibly convert all the Spanish Jews to Christianity or else they have to leave. So they called them the uh, conversos, those who are forcibly converted. And then they would spy them out to see if they were still practicing Judaism. And if they found them resting on the Sabbath or saying words like the Shema or celebrating Hanukkah with a menorah, certain things like that, then they would turn them in. They would be tortured for any information they could give on other closet Jews and then publicly burned at the stake. And so saying the Shema while you're being burned at the stake as a Jew in the Middle Ages is a way to say, yes, I am one of these people. I do believe these things. And the core thing that I believe in my own Hebrew language is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, or Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hero Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, over and over and over. And that's how they die. And this phenomenon has not stopped. It still goes on. Uh, there's a story that Rabbi Shraga Simmons tells about a man in 2002, Seth Mandel, who spoke at a rally. He said, in the Sparrow pizza bombing, this is in 2002, which killed 15 people in Jerusalem, five members of a Dutch family were killed. One was a four-year-old boy named Avraham Yitzhak. As he was lying on the ground, bleeding, burning, and dying, he said to his father, Abba, please help me. Save me. His father reached over and held his hand. Together, they said the words of the Shema. And that's all you can do. Your son's dying. He's bleeding out. You hold his hand. Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Still to this day, what a legacy. What a legacy of a people and their intent fervor to stay true to their God. It's their core, like I said to you in, in the start, it's what they will die for and it's what they will live for. I talked about the dying. Let's talk about the living. Look at verse 6. It's a deep truth, it's a profound truth, but it's a simple truth. Yahweh is one, Yahweh is our God, you are to love him with everything. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 says, <clears throat> And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Uh, it says in the Talmud that one of the reasons why the temple was destroyed was because the people refrained from reciting the morning and the evening Shema. This is uh, a statement that is said twice daily. You know why they say it twice daily? Because right there in verse 7 it says, when you lie down. So they say the Shema when they lie down, and then they say it when they rise up in the morning. It's said when praising God, it's said when petitioning God, it's taught to children as soon as they are able to learn it. And they have a tradition, this is a later tradition, but it's a, an interesting one, that reciting the Shema is called 
the acceptance of the yoke of the kingship of God. In other words, when you say the words, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, you shall love him with everything, that when you say those words, you're, you're recognizing God as king who reigns over you. In other words, you're, you're committing yourself to obedience. You're saying, I'm going to keep his commandments. There's another story that uh, Rabbi Simmons tells about a man in 1945, after the war had ended in Europe, who was sent to find Jewish children who had been hidden away by people that were protecting them. And he went all over. A lot of these children didn't even know they were Jewish or know their background or anything like that. And he, and we, he went all over. And what he would do is he would get to a town and he would have all the children come to the town square. And then before them all, he would belt out the words of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he would check the faces of the children. And those who had tears in his eyes, he recognized as Jewish. Because a Jewish child hears those words every night when their mother puts them to bed. And so that would trigger an emotional response in that child. And that's how he was able to find the Jewish, at least some of the Jewish children that had been saved. So it's something you teach to your children. You, and it's not a silent, cold belief, the Shema. The Shema is a loud, spoken belief. They don't, I don't know if you ever, have any of you ever seen a Jewish person pray? The first part they're supposed to say out loud. Then they can be quiet. You know, they can kind of like mutter it to themselves. But that first part, they cover their eyes with their right hand. And they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they, they go through the rest of it. And, it, and it's, it's a spoken statement. It's a declaration. It's not private. You're supposed to talk about it when you sit. You see that in verse 7 there? When you sit, when you rise, you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you rise up, teach it to your children. Look at the beginning of verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your what? On your heart. Would you say it's on their heart? Seems like it's on their heart. <laughs> Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. That's kind of weird, huh? Bind it as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontless between your eyes. These here are boxes. Little leather black boxes. They're called teflon. And inside these boxes, one goes on your hand, one goes on your head, just like it says in verse 8 here, is this handwritten Hebrew scroll. And you can probably see at the, at the top there those two big letters, the A and the D, written larger than the rest as a witness that this is God's declaration. And this is a passage from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It also has some other scriptures in it from later on in Deuteronomy uh, and from Numbers where it talks about binding these things on you. And so they took it literally, Right? They actually bind, when they pray, they bind this box onto their, I guess that's the left bicep, and then they wrap it around their arm and right around their fingers with these leather straps, and then they wear the other box of Scripture on their forehead. And that's how a Jewish person looks when they pray. And so I suppose you're thinking, well, are you saying that we're going to have a little cultural change here at Living Hope? Well, I'm <laughs> We'll get to how this affects us today in a minute. Just, just hang with me in Deuteronomy for a, for a few more minutes here before we look at how this affects us today. It's not going to hurt you, though. If you put a scripture box on your head, it's not going to hurt you. I'm not going to 
certainly say is required or anything like that. All right, look at verse 9. Here's the next thing about the Shema. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so that's where we get this mezuzah. Has any of you ever seen a mezuzah? It's usually on the doorpost to a Jewish person's home. And when you enter in, what you do is you touch your hand to the mezuzah, then you kiss your hand. And that's what you do every time you enter into the house. And inside of it, I show you the backside here, inside of it is a Hebrew scroll with those same scriptures in it. It contains parchment and handwritten scriptures. And I took a picture this morning. Has any of you ever noticed that we have kind of an improv mezuzah here at Living Hope? When you walk in your, our front door, this is what you see. It says the Shema right there. You all walked, well, unless you came in the side door, you walked under it. I, don't, I think we probably put it that high so you wouldn't put your hand on it and kiss it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but my Uncle Jimmy put that up there. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. That's the Shema. It's right out there, painted. So I'm not, I'm not saying anything that's not already there. There you have it. So, but anyhow, the, the Jews interpreted this as, you know, you, you should, it says you write it on the doorpost, so they put it in a little scroll, and they hang it on the doorpost. Let's look at the next one here. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 says, And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget Yahweh, the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the household of slavery. This verse is all about grace. It's all about grace. God's giving them a land. They, they're not going to have to acquire the land in traditional means, right? God is going to fight with them and for them to get this land. And God says, look, you're going to get into this land. There are going to be olive trees there that you didn't even plant. They're just already there. They're there to bless you. They're there as a gift, as grace, right? All these different things that these people are going to get, they didn't work for them. God's giving it to them. And God knows there's something funny about people. If we prosper... We have this memory problem. If we suffer, we remember God, don't we? If, if, if we're going through some trial, if we're going through a sickness, if we're dealing with a loved one who's just out there, right? And we're, what do we do? We pray. Suddenly we start reading books about fasting, right? We become really tuned into God, right? And then life is good. Things have calmed down, right? You know, and, and things are reliable, and, you know, you really, everything is just kind of okay. It's good, you know. Then it's like, gosh, I don't even, I don't, maybe I don't want to come on Sunday. You know, it's just, it's a nice day out. Gee, look at that. All right? But if you're suffering, you get there on Sunday. You get there early. You're in the prayer room, right? Because you need God, right? And so God says, look, I'm going to bring you to this land. It's going to be great, right? But do not forget me. Do not forget me. He says it before it happens, right? He says, do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 13, it is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. He's really concerned about this. You notice that? Verse 4, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, right? That's how this little section started. Over here in verse, what is it, 13? Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods. We only made it 10 verses. He's saying the same thing again. Don't go after other gods. I'm really concerned about this, Israel. Don't go after other gods. Listen up. In Deuteronomy 6.4, I've got exclamation points all over the place. What about you? Do you have exclamation points there in your translation? Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. Listen up. Don't forget this. When you go in and you see all these people and the majority is going in this other direction towards polytheism, towards worshiping multiple gods, don't fall for it. That's what he says. Verse 15, For Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Whew! That is intense. That is intense, isn't it? God's sensitive. And he doesn't have this same covenant with all the peoples of the world. He has it with Israel. He brought them out. He says, look, you be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. This is going to be great. I'm going to give you an olive tree. You're going to get a fig tree. You're going to get a, a vineyard. I'll give you houses, whatever. Just stay true to me. Stay true to me. If you just stay true to me, then you'll be okay. And what do they do? We'll get to that in a second. But what he says is, and if you don't, just like any lover, any relationship, somebody that you truly love, if, they, if they're not faithful to you, what happens? Something happens in your heart, right? The old, the old way of saying it is your wrath gets kindled, okay? And God says, look, if you guys are going to cheat on me, my wrath is going to be kindled. And if you're God, that also involves the possibility of being destroyed from the face of the earth. So, so he, you know, and, and look, if you don't want to be part of his people, he doesn't force you to. Look, go live somewhere else. But if you're going to live as part of his people, this is the deal. That's what he says to them. That's what all of Deuteronomy is saying. This is like the marriage contract. This is what God expects out of you. This is what he's going to do for you. This is what's going to happen if you don't want to do it. What do you say? And you know what the people say? Let's do it. And they went into the land, and they were good. They were good for one generation. For one gener so long as Joshua and the elders were alive, they were good. But then you know what happened? They forgot. They did. They forgot. They forgot, and they started worshiping these other gods, and that was a thorn in their side all throughout their history for century after century after century. What does God do? He sends in the prophet, and he says, return to me. Return to me. And the people, maybe some of them return, but eventually they forget. And they forget, and they forget, and we have this downward spiral of a cycle of dysfunction until finally God says, enough! You're out. And he kicks them out of the land. He says, I brought you into the land. This is the deal. Deuteronomy 6, that's the deal. You're out. He kicks them out of the land for 70 years. He exiles them. It's the most traumatic event in the Old Testament. Getting kicked out of the land, right? They destroy, the Babylonians come, they destroy the temple, they get kicked out of the land. As they're living in a foreign land, they return to God. At least some of them do. And when they return to God, they, they realize, we can't do this anymore. This stops here. That's what they decided. And they decided, we're not going to worship other gods anymore. Eventually, they came back to the land, and you know what? They did not worship other gods. They did not have issues with idolatry. You look at the time of Jesus, what's the issue? 
The issue is the Romans or how do you keep the Sabbath or things like that. There is no idolatry mentioned. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their idolatry. Not the Jews, no. They got it squared away. You know why? Because they started to speak about these words when they went to bed, when they rose up, when they sat down, when they came home, and they taught it to their children. The only way that children will learn it, it's not like in our day and time, it's not like the public school system is going to teach this, right? So, I mean, how are they going to learn it, right? It has to be taught to them. It has to be taught to them. So, the question is, how do we process this as Christians, Right? I have to tell you all about like the Hebrew and the Jewish mindset and these traditions they have and all that. Well, we look to Christ. Let's look at Mark chapter 12. We look to Christ. As Christians, we look to Christ, right? Does that make sense? What does he say about the Shema? Does Jesus talk about the Shema? Did Jesus accept the Shema? Did Jesus change the Shema? Did Jesus say, all right, this is Shema 2.0? Did he do that? Because if he did that, then that's where we're at, if we're Christians, right? So look at Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Interestingly enough, Jesus has a conversation about the Shema, right in Mark. Isn't that tremendous? So we don't have to guess. We don't have to infer. We don't have to figure it out on our own. Jesus says, well, we'll see what he says. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment? is the foremost of all. So that's a scribe, and he's asking Jesus. And this is not a stumper question. Stumper questions go like this. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? <laughs> and either way you answer it, you're ruined, right? That's a stumper question. This is an honest question. This is, let's check out this rabbi. Let's see what he says to this. It's a much more honest-hearted question. It's not like there was a woman and she had seven husbands and in the resurrection, who's what? That's a stumper question. This right here, this is like, so what do you say, Rabbi? What's the most important? What's the most important thing, teacher? And uh, Jesus answered, and I don't get the impression Jesus had to think about it for a long time. There's no stooping on the ground to write in the sand here. Jesus just answers. Probably the same way anyone else would answer. The foremost is, verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's what Jesus said. The scribe asked him, what's the most important thing? What is a scribe other than a Bible expert? Right? So the Bible expert asked Jesus, what's the most important thing? Jesus, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus' answer was. Jesus agrees with the Shema. Jesus is a Jewish person who recognizes the Shema is the creed, is the statement of faith for the people of God. Jesus doesn't change this. He does not change this. What does he do? He affirms it. He affirms it. And then he adds part two is Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So he adds that on, right? but he doesn't change the former. There is no other commandment greater than these. Uh, verse 32, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. 
and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Look at, check out this response here. We're in verse 32. The scribe says, right, teacher. The scribe agrees with Jesus. So what do we have here? We have two Jews in the first century. One of them a scribe, one of them a rabbi. Also, we believe Messiah, right? This guy didn't believe that yet, but we know him to be the Messiah. So we have the Messiah and we have a scribe. And what are they talking about? They're talking about God. Who's God? What's the greatest commandment? Well, it's to recognize that Yahweh is our only God and to love him with everything. Right. Where's the disagreement? You read all the parts around this. There's disagreement everywhere. These guys actually agree on something. Do you know how hard it is to find two that agree? And they agree. This is one of the things that's not negotiable, not debatable, not changeable. It's immutable. It's still the same, right? And this is how the scribe hears Jesus. He says, he is one. You have truly stated that he is one. And that little word, he, is so important. It's so important because that little word, he, is what we call a singular pronoun. It's a singular pronoun. A plural pronoun is they. A singular pronoun is he or she or it, right? So Jesus says, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And the scribe says, he is one. So he recognizes that God is a singular person if he uses a singular personal pronoun. So he is one. And what else does he say there? There is no one else besides him. Look, this is all repetitious language. This is like redundancy, just in case we miss it somewhere. Jesus says, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. The scribe comes back, he is one, and there's no one else besides him. This is absolutely crystal clear in everyone's mind at this point in history who God is. Well, okay, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I love that, right? You're not far from the kingdom of God, buddy. You know, Jesus is the king, so you're pretty close to the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So Jesus and the scribe agree on who God is. And so here are some observations. Number one, the Jewish scribe did not believe that Jesus was God. He thought Jesus was a rabbi. Look, if you go up to a human being, you don't think, oh, maybe they're a transformer. Disguised as a human. You, you, I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I meet somebody new, I don't have that thought, okay? I, I think, okay, this is a human being. So he thinks that Jesus is a rabbi, which is why he approaches him, right, and asks him what's the commandment. And then verse 2, or, or point observation number 2, the scribe plainly understands the Shema to mean he is one, and there is no one else besides him. That's how he interprets the Shema. Jesus agrees with the scribe on this understanding by saying you are not far from the kingdom of God, right? So we have uh, Jesus, who is a Jewish teacher, and a scribe, who is a Jewish student, you know, uh, somebody that studies the Bible, and they agree on who God is. Now, after the time of Christ, some Christians who were out of touch with the Jewish legacy of the Shema started thinking that Jesus and God were somehow the same, or that Jesus was somehow God. And in their zeal to exalt him, they started calling Jesus a God. Now, this is understandable, because in the Bible, 
angels are called God as well. But nobody gets confused about that because that's not the true God, not the almighty God. They are lower level spiritual beings, right? And so it's easy to see how somebody could get confused about that. But as time wore on, some Christians began teaching, this is about the year 318, that Jesus never had a beginning. They started teaching that Jesus was eternal. In particular, a man named Alexander in Egypt started teaching this around the year 318. He's the overseer of a number of churches. One of the pastors, or what they would call a presbyter, a man named Arius, stood up and said, no. And he was an old man. He wasn't some young buck from an outside perspective. He was a conservative, older man. I think he was in his 60s. And he says, look, this is not the teaching we've received, Alexander. With respect, we can't accept it. And so what Alexander did was he fired Arius and kicked him, not only fired him, but kicked him out of Christianity so that he couldn't go to any church in all of Egypt. At which point, Arius was very upset. So he wrote to some other bishops that he knew outside of Egypt to try to get them to deal with this, this Alexander who was doing these things to him. It ignited a controversy. Is Jesus eternal or does he have a beginning was the controversy that starts in the fourth century here. Now, there was this other man involved in the situation, a very powerful man named Constantine. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And Emperor Constantine wanted to favor Christianity. And he wanted to introduce Christianity. He wanted Christianity to go public. So it wasn't something whispered in the corners, in the downtown areas, and in the upper story apartments at night or early in the morning, but that it would be something proclaimed through the land, because Constantine liked Christianity. However, do you realize how embarrassing it would be to, to sort of like make Christianity go public if the Christians can't agree on Christ? You have this one group of Christians here that say Christ is eternal, he's on the same level of God, and the other ones say, no, nah, I don't think so. He's begotten. He's begotten. If you're begotten, you have a beginning. You can't be eternal. And so Christianity is divided over this issue, and they're fighting about it. And Constantine says, no, we're going to settle this. He's a shrewd politician. And so he gathers everyone together, and he brings them to the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, and he says to them, this is what we're going to believe. We're going to believe Jesus is eternal on the same level as God. And if you don't agree with this, there are curses what are called anathemas. And if you don't believe this, you're kicked out of the church. You're kicked out of the church. And so you would think that would be the final point, right? But instead, you know what that 325 council did? It caused something that was a local skirmish to explode into a world war among Christians. And there was fighting for 60 years over this issue where there were council after council after council, dozens of councils, most of which sided with Arius, that he was not eternal, then sided with Alexander, that he was eternal. And then finally, in the year 381, a new emperor came on the scene named Theodosius and said, we're going to believe this doctrine of the Trinity, and if you don't accept it, you're out of the church. And you know what? That caused major division. It caused major division. And there were a lot of Christians who got kicked out of Christianity. And then a, a little while later, there was another council related to that. And then another one. In fact, all told, there were seven big councils from the year 325 to the year 787. And every one of those councils dealt with 
something related to this issue about Jesus being God. And in the end, every one of those councils excluded Christians from being part of Christianity because the idea was divisive and it continued to divide people year after year after year after year. There are whole groups of millions of Christians who are excluded from Christianity because of this, right? And there have been throughout time. And that's all because we forgot the Shema. We stopped we stop saying the Shema. We stopped saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We forgot it. There, people had been saying it for year after year after year, century after century, from the time of the exile, which is 586, up until the time of Christ, that's 586 years, almost 600 years, right? And then suddenly Christianity spreads beyond the, the land, and now people are getting different ideas. They're not remembering to say the Shema. They forgot. They forgot. And so what does that mean about us today? Well, I don't know about you. But I'm going to stick with Jesus. I'm going to stick with Jesus. They asked Jesus, what's the most important? He said, Shema Yisrael. He said, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with everyone. The guy says, you're right, he's one. There's no one else beside him. That's it. I put my period there. That's my period. I don't have a colon or a comma or some extension on that. That's it. And that's the creed of Jesus. That's what he said. I'm a Christian. A Christian has to be with Christ. Can we agree on that? So if a Christian is with Christ, then let's go with the Shema. Let's go with this creed. It's ancient. It's beautiful. It's simple. It's easy to remember. It doesn't take an army of theologians to describe. And there's no charges of heresy and bullying and divisiveness. You just say God is one. The Father of Jesus is one. That's it. If you don't mind, if you would like to affirm this with me, let's stand together. Let's say this out loud together as a congregation. If you agree with these words... Let's go ahead and say this by way of closing. All together. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture, for the beautiful simplicity of it. We ask that you help us to stick with Jesus, to stick with this simple creed, we recognize you as the only true God, as the one who is worthy of all glory and honor. And we ask that you would help us through Christ to honor you in this way today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.